This is the Hack Your Wealth Podcast, Episode 73. Welcome to the Hack Your Wealth Podcast, where we teach wealth building hacks for lawyers, engineers, and MBAs. I'm your host, Andrew Chen. All right, thanks so much again for tuning into the podcast. For today's episode, I invited another guest to come and share their tips and strategies and insights with us. So before we jump into that, as always, I want to invite you to join the private Hack Your Wealth Facebook group. You can access that at hackyourwealth.com slash FB. Definitely encourage you to join us there. It is a place for us to connect, have a two-way dialogue. I'm in there every single day, often multiple times a day, and I try to respond to every question and comment there. And it's a place where people can ask about financial independence, early retirement, tax strategies, real estate investing, side business income, online income, career transitions, career advice, or just ask about whatever's on their mind related to personal finance or career-related issues. Definitely encourage you to check that out. It's a great, friendly, helpful group of people, and we would love to have you there. Again, hackyourwealth.com slash FB. All right, let's jump into today's interview. My guest today is Shane Mason. Shane is a CPA who specializes in helping entrepreneurs and tech professionals with tax and financial planning, particularly stock option tax planning. He worked for a number of years at large national accounting firms before co-founding his own CPA firm, Brooklyn Phi. I invited Shane to the podcast this week to share tips and insights about tax planning when it comes to stock options and stock-based compensation. This will be particularly relevant to folks who earn a material part of their compensation in the form of stock, as is the case for folks who work in the tech industry and in startups, early-stage businesses, or even large-cap tech companies. Shane, thanks so much for joining us today to share uh, to chat about this important topic. Thanks, Andrew. I'm happy to be here. I'd love to start just by learning a little bit more about your background. Like, how did you get into specializing in tax planning for uh, tech professionals and folks who earn a large portion of their income from stock compensation? Yeah, yeah, totally. I can give you the background. Um, started my career at uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers in Austin, Texas, back in 2010. Feels like longer ago. Feels like a long time ago. Uh, uh, and uh, we were working with tech companies in the, in the area. Austin has a great tech scene. I was working at, in the tax department there. Um, helping out uh, technology firms uh, file their tax returns, et cetera. And part of that was dealing with the options that they were granting to their employees, uh, you know, writing off uh, those options as expenses and getting to understand uh, non-qualified incentive stock options, RSUs, restricted stock. Uh, did that for about three, four years and then uh, moved up to New York and worked for a mid-sized firm uh, where we kind of flipped the script wherein I was actually filing the tax returns for the recipients of the, of the grants instead of the companies that were issuing them. Um, started, I was working there for three, about three years and started moonlighting on the side about halfway into it, realized that most of the, of the value that clients get uh, out of a relationship with a CPA really comes from advisory and not just filling out forms. Um, so I got my CFP designation in 2015 and started moonlighting and providing equity compensation advice uh, on the side uh, back then, realized that you really can't do that on the side. It needs to be a full-blown, uh, all-in relationship because of how volatile equity compensation is and how hands-on it needs to be. Uh, started Brooklyn Phi in uh, late 2017 with my business partner. Uh, 2018 is where we had our first, like, really getting off the ground after that tax season uh, was over in 2018 and um, hit the ground running. We've been doing it for about three and a half, four years now. Um, just all in on the tech niche, and it just keeps getting more and more. The rabbit hole keeps going deeper and deeper. Uh, as we've discovered, uh, we're having a lot of fun with it. Yeah, that's a growing industry. Cool. Thanks. Thanks so much for the background. Um, so I'd love to just you know dive right in. Like, can you help us understand like what are the different types of stock based compensation, uh, the range of stock based compensation out there, and the tax implication and ta basic tax regime that applies to each one. Yeah, so it might help. There, there, there's a lot of different types of equity comp. There's like a lot of like outliers and weird niche ones, but it helps to start with a general framework of there being four, like four, four of the main types of equity comp. And you can even split those four into two different types amongst those four. So there's what's called full grant awards, where you just receive a full share, uh, or full, full share awards, where the, the two of those are restricted stock units and just restricted stock. Okay, so when those vest, you receive a share and it's just that simple. I mean, it can get more complicated if there's like limitations on 
you know, they're called restricted for a reason because there's vesting related to them and that can get quite complicated. And there's 83 Bs, which we can talk about later. But at the end of the day, those two types of awards are when it vests, you receive a whole share. And the other two are, are, um, are options, okay? They're not full share awards, but you receive the option, which requires one more step in the process. And that is the exercise that option. So the option can vest, um, but what that all that has vested is not the full share, it's the option to purchase that share at a specific price. And those two types of awards are non-qualified stock options or just really regular stock options is another way to think about them. And then there's what's called incentive stock options, uh, which qualify uh, for certain advanced or, or special tax treatment. Uh, and that's why the other ones are called non-qualified stock options because they don't qualify for the, that special tax treatment, which we can dig into. I don't, I don't know how deep you wanna get into the weeds on each of those four different types, uh, but generally, uh, the taxation works, the, the taxation principles of them are that whenever something vests for full share awards, the taxation uh, restricted stock and restricted stock units, whenever those vest, typically the value of those shares on the date of the vest are taxable income, and they will show up on your tax documents, whether that's a W-2 or a 1099. Um, whereas with options, the taxable event is actually when you exercise them, not the vesting. Uh, and the, the taxation, the taxable event or the size of the taxable event is dependent upon the difference between the strike price, what you pay for it essentially, and the value of the share uh, when you exercise it. The difference between those two things uh, is what's going to show up in your income in that year. Uh, okay, awesome. So uh, I'd love to, yes, I'd definitely love to get into the nitty gritty details. The, the options one is going to be a little bit more complicated. So maybe start with the the RSU one, the restricted stock one. First, can you help us understand the difference between RSUs and regular restricted stock? I mean, a share is a share. What is the difference? Yeah, generally restricted stock is going to be, it's going to be one of the first, like it's helpful to think about when companies decide to grant these types of things as well. Like there is a, I wish I could have had a visual here. Whenever I teach other advisors about equity compensation, I use a visual and it shows like at the beginning, you know, at the founding, typically it's restricted stock. And that usually goes to the original owners of the company. Like there's three people sitting around and they're deciding how to like incentivize everyone to, um, to stick around to like build equity in a, in a startup. And that's usually with restricted stock. It'll say, here's your, you get 33% of the company, but it has to vest over three years. So it's stock that is restricted by you actually performing services for this company. If you stop doing that, then you don't get the stock, right? So that is restricted stock. And typically that's where you people hear about 83B elections. Um, they wanna accelerate it. What an 83B election does is it allows, you know, typically with restricted stock, when it vests, it shows up in your income at the time that it vests. So with an 83B, you can accelerate all that income into the current year. And that's really valuable if the stock is currently worth nothing, right? <laughs> Whereas, you know, three years from now when it vests, it could be, your company could be a unicorn at that point if you're very lucky. And, you know, one third of your company vesting and multi-million dollar, maybe tens of millions of dollars showing up in your income at that point in time is not a good thing. So 83B elections are almost always 99% of the time a good idea. So anyway, so at the beginning, there's restricted uh, stock. Actually, at the very other end of the spectrum, when a company is typically public is when you get RSUs. Um, RSUs are a tool um, that allows uh, public companies to say, uh, you know, these RSUs are going to vest over the next four years. And when they do, they show up in your income. They're going to show up in your W-2. And it's very easy to value them at the time of the vest because we're a public company at that point, right? Because if we're traded on the stock exchange routinely, because um, we're public now, now it's easy for us to show you the value of this company. Whereas with restricted stock, it's way before there's any valuations. Uh, it's usually the value of that company is only updated once or twice a year if they're going through a series raise or a third-party valuation company comes in uh, and values that company. So restricted stock is usually at the very beginning. Restricted stock units are typically just before they go public, maybe they're series C or D or E or on down the alphabet, and they're heading towards an IPO. And then RSUs are very popular with post-public uh, companies because of their ease of use. Makes um, sense. So yeah. it sounds like restricted stock is really is really applicable to the founders. And if you're not a founder, you're probably looking at either options or RSUs. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that's typical. Um, there's, you know, exceptions to every rule. In between the public and the founding, there's typically a lot of incentive stock options and non-qualified options. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's typically come first and then non-quals come after that. Makes sense. You know, if the, the company's not public yet and they're just doing their periodic 409A valuation, is that mm -hmm. the value that you would be using 
uh, to you know at at grant or vest date for purposes of you know computing your your tax liability? Yeah, exactly. So if someone is familiar with the jargon word 409A, uh, that's the within the Internal Revenue Code, it references like how a company would or how the IRS is going to value uh, the difference between the fair market value and the strike price, thus your taxable income pre-IPO, uh, right? Like post-IPO, the 409A is no longer applicable because you've got the fair market value of the daily, it's on the stock market. So uh, so yes, so it's the, that's the value that you're going to use. You're going to ask, you know, Hey, you've got, let's say you've got some options you want to exercise. Uh, you're going to pay X amount for them. And Y is the, what's the value? You're not publicly traded. You got to figure it out. Um, so since you're not public, there's usually an accounting firm, um, or valuation firm that comes in and says, Hey, pre IPO company, this is your 409 a valuation, uh, which is X amount per share that you, your employees can use. This is what we're going to report to the IRS when your employees exercise shares. So the IRS knows uh, how much income to, that you're going to experience. Yeah. Like I remember, uh, you know, I, I worked at a past company, got RSUs was not public yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and because the value of these companies can change actually quite drastically, even in a six month time period, you're typically, do, oh, yeah. I guess, doing a 409A evaluation, maybe quarterly or twice a year. Um, if, you're, if your timing is right, did, does that mean you can end up getting a valuation that's quite low compared to what the reality is when you actually say join the company. Yeah, yeah, we've seen um, we've seen <laughs> we've seen four hundred nine A valuations. I don't even know the word for it, like one hundred X over the course of a year or two. Um, so within the context of you know, you want the four hundred nine A to be sky high for economic reasons, right? For when you actually go to sell the shares or for your personal net worth, but for tax reasons, yes, you want that four hundred nine A valuation to be as low as possible, especially if if you're in a rare company where RSUs vest pre IPO. Most most RSUs now have a double trigger vesting, wherein you vest over a period of time, but also the company needs to be public for that actually to vest double trigger you know, the time and the, but um, yeah, the 409A, you want that to be low because that's going to show up in your income. Or if you're exercising options, um, you want the 409A to be very close to your strike price so that there's not much of a taxable event. And then in a perfect world, if you time everything perfectly, it immediately shoots up. The 409A shoots up after you've exercised. So your taxable issues are less of a problem. I see. So the, you, you could, whether by luck or by skill, you could time it in such a way that your tax liability is actually quite low compared to the economic value of the shares. Is that is that right? Yeah. I mean, if you're close to management, I mean, the things that typically increase the 409A valuation are typically around a series raise. So if you're series B and your 409A is $5 a share, and for some reason, you know that a series, you know, they're going to raise some more money, that's typically where a 409A will, will jump up quite a bit. Uh, it doesn't always work that way, but yeah, that, that's typically one of the things that'll change a four hundred nine A valuation. Got it. So I guess um, the when it, when it comes to restricted stock option, uh, sorry, restricted stock units, mm-hmm. um, you 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 are just uh, you're just imputed ordinary income at the vesting date, and then after that, it's just shorter long term capital gains. Is that accurate? Yeah, yeah. So I had mentioned earlier that there's only one event that really happens with restricted stock units. That's actually not true. Uh, that's there's only one event to get your shares, um, but there is actually we got to remember you got to sell those shares at one at some point in the future, right? So yes, to your credit or to your point, um, the, the income shows up as ordinary income on your W two when the RSUs vest, and now you have the share. So what do you do with that share after you own it? Um, you hold on to it, you try to get long-term capital gains on the sale of that share, or do you just go ahead and sell it? Um, our policy at Brooklyn FI, when we talk to our clients, is that we sell it right away. Um, typically, if you have RSUs in a company, you know you have a concentrated position, as we like to say, in that company. If you have more than 20% of your net worth of your portfolio is made up of that one company, then that's a concentrated position. It's something that we need to get you out of, traditional financial advice requires diversification. It's only the, it's the only free lunch, as we like to say, uh, in the financial planning space. So if you've already paid taxes on that RSU share because it showed up on your W-2, we're not going to wait a whole year for it to, for just for the fluctuation in that one stock to potentially get long-term cap gains. Let's say, for example, just quickly that it vests at $100. Even if it goes up to $120, it experiences great 20% growth. 
you're only getting long-term cap gain treatment on the $20 difference. So you're really holding on to a concentrated position for a whole extra year for, you know, preferential tax treatment on 20%. If, you, if you're lucky, sometimes it'll go down in value and your capital losses are limited to only $3,000 per year. So if it, if it dips quite a bit, it only helps your taxes quite a little. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Um, uh, let's shift to options. So um, help us understand the tax regime, how it works in some detail for both non-qualified and incentive stock options. Cool, yeah, I'll start with non-quals, non-qualified stock options because they're simpler. And then incentive stock options is probably another podcast, but I'll do my best to squeeze that in as well. Um, Non-qualified options are quite similar to RSUs in that uh, when the taxable event does happen, they will show up in your W-2 and they will be subject to ordinary income tax rates, just like your wages are. Uh, They will also be subject to not just ordinary income taxes, but also Social Security and Medicare taxes as well. Um, So that will be withheld as well. And the way that we figure out the value that is going to show up in your W-2 is we take the difference between the fair market value and the strike price. So to use a concrete example, let's say that the fair market value, if it's a public company, it's obvious it's $25, or if the 409A is pegged at $25 for a period of time, um, and your strike price is $10. So you have to come up with $10 in cash for every option that you want to exercise. Let's say that's 10. So you pay $100 for those shares. And then you've got um, your $15 of value per share, 25 minus 10. That's going to be the value times 10 that shows up in your W-2. All right. Hope I got that math right because, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it, it makes sense. So just uh, <laughs> to be clear, you get the shares awarded, say, on your, you know, shortly after you start working there. Uh-huh. When you vest, you're, vest, you're vesting the right to buy the share. If you mm-hmm. decide to exercise, that's then you would buy at the strike price. That's the in your example, that's the ten dollars. So you fork over ten per share to the company, and mm-hmm. then you now own stock uh, in the company. And that that stock is theoretically worth in this example twenty five dollars because that was the most recent valuation. So yes. your gain, not a cash gain, but a paper right. gain, is now exactly. fifteen bucks per share. Uh, I think that's called like the bargain element. Exactly, and, and that is what you are going to be taxed on at ordinary rates, correct? So you have just paid money to pay tax. Correct, yes. <laughs> so this, you know, buying you buying your options is actually typically something that people that already have money or that are very non-risk averse or, or friendly with risk do, all right? And the payoff for that is if that $25 per share company goes and IPOs in three years and now it's $150 a share, then you've, have taken risk for a great reward. Yeah, and okay. you earn all, obviously earn all that back. But yes, just to be clear, when you exercise, you paid ten dollars, and then you know then no you good no good deed goes unpunished. Now you're going to pay tax on fifteen dollars per share because you theoretically have that gain, even though you don't have the cash in your hand. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Exactly. And the IRS's mind: you gave your friend ten dollars, and your friend gave you twenty five back, so fifteen dollars of income has just occurred. Right. Right. And then after that, I think it's. Uh, the the tax regime should be very similar to RSUs, right? After that, it's just based short on short term, short or long term capital gains when you sell, if if you yep. can even sell. Exactly, yeah. So at that point, yes, it's with a lot of our clients, we have them exercise their shares, their their non qualified options, and then immediately sell the shares because they've paid the tax on it at that point already. Yeah, it, like it, yeah, we just do it like in a secondary market or something. If they're pre-IPO, yes. If the secondary market does come up and we have an opportunity to take some risk off the table, we do often recommend that they go ahead and do that. Hmm. Gotcha. Okay. Um, all right. So then the complicated one, ISOs, incentive stock options. So this one gets gnarly with AMT and all this. Can you help us walk through, you know, somebody who's like reasonably familiar with how to do their finances and they how to do their taxes, but help us understand the, the broad strokes of how the tax regime here works. Yeah, so just to, just to start off, I think I can simplify this a bit, but if you do have, um, for those of us listening to this and they have say $50,000 of gains available, like bargain element that we mentioned before, um, they should have a tax advisor. You should talk to somebody before you do this because it, it, it can get kind of messy and it's like a multi-year issue. And even if you just have like a good tax preparer that knows what they're doing in equity compensation space, it'll, it could save you a lot of money. One time we had seen a client that didn't know what they were doing 
uh, they work with a CPA, they didn't know what they were doing, and then they TurboTax it the next year, and they, they lost, they just didn't know how to pick up a $50,000 tax credit, and that would have been wiped away if we hadn't found it when we eventually did their taxes years later and amended old returns. So if, uh, let me explain it, and then you can see why I, I'm even mentioning that. So the difference between ISOs and non-quals is uh, ISOs and non-qualified stock options is the bargain element that existed before in non-qualified options, the 25 you know, minus 10, that $15, that shows up in your in your income and on your W-2, that doesn't happen for incentive stock options. So when you exercise those, um, they don't show up in your income. They're not subject um, to ordinary income taxes. They're not subject to social security and Medicare, which is great, okay? If you satisfy certain holding requirements, you have to um, have held the, the stock from two years from the time it's granted to the time you sell it. And you also have to have held it one year from the time that you exercise it to the time you sell it. Uh, and on, so- on this one, I just want to um, uh, uh, sort of sidebar here. Mm-hmm. I, uh, the, if, you, if you do the math on that, if you just exactly meet those requirements, and that typically for a company, I think that means you would have vested your first tranche. And then in the second year, by the time the second year rolls around or finishes, rather, you've qualified for long-term gains. Is that like, is that, was that the intention of this rule to make, to make it that way? I would wager that it is. I haven't actually read, I haven't spoken to the senators or the, I don't know when incentive stock options were invented. Honestly, I think it might've been in the nineties. So the, the tax foundation would probably be a good place to figure out why that, you know, I love to get into the whys that certain things were created in tax code. But if you look at the, the rules surrounding it, um, it, it, it looks like it's intended for people to stick around, right? Like if you stick around at a company, it has, you have to be there for essentially two years to qualify for special tax purposes, uh, special tax provisions. So it looks like the intention was to keep people working at these companies and especially early people that started at the company quite early because they're typically awarded. There's, there's a cap on, um, which we don't even get into, but there's a cap on the value that can be awarded to each of your employees. And once the company is too big, it's really hard to even offer incentive stock options. So it's really for those early employees to keep them uh, around to build, you know, new companies. We're such we're into entrepreneurship here in America. So that looks, uh, the fact pattern lines up with all of those intentions. Well, and what is the cap? I actually didn't I didn't know about that. What is the cap? Yeah, it's a hundred thousand dollars in value of the company. Okay, so hmm. yeah, it's it's a little tricky. Um, essentially, if uh, we'll have to put this one in the show notes because we could we could spend some time on this one. I, I see. Um, Your company should tell you if they're if they've given you too much value in uh, incentive stock options. The internal accountants will handle that. Interesting, because like when, so when uh, people join promising startups for options, they're trying to do the math to say, okay, this could eventually translate into you know multiple millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're doing projections, of course, and you know, based on you know their their belief about where the company would go. But at least it sounds like on paper at that moment that they're granted the value of whatever they're granted at that moment is not allowed to uh, uh, exceed about a hundred K. Is that correct? Well, the thing about that is, is that typically when you are granted options, the strike price is equal to the 409 a. Okay. So that the valuation at that point is zero. Right. Like there's because if the strike price is equal to the fair market value, then the, the strike, then it's worth nothing. Oh, oh, I see what you mean. Gotcha. 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 Yeah. Gotcha. Um, so if you are talking to like if we're advising a client and they have one hundred thousand dollars of non-qual or we'll say, you know, a uh, hundred thousand shares and they have a strike price of one dollar uh, and they're non-quals and ISOs, we would always take the ISOs like ISOs are just worth more. I, yeah, yeah, I, I got gotcha. you. Disqualify an ISO, like if you don't meet the holding requirements, it just becomes a non-qualified stock option that has not as good tax treatment. Yeah, and yeah. Sometimes we tell our clients just to disqualify them because maybe they're already so rich it doesn't really even matter that much, mm-hmm. or the the value or ninety nine percent of their portfolio is made up of one stock, so we don't really we're not we're more worried about getting risk off the table than saving fifteen percent on that specific tranche of, of options that they hold. True, true. And it sounds like the 100K is really just about, you can't be in the black more than 100K, is that right? In the black, um, as in the company, 
There well, can't be there can't be existing bargain element that's awarded to you at the time uh, of grant that's more than 100k. I think is that what you're is that what you're saying? In the years, you know, in the years that I've reviewed grants and we're talking about millions of shares, I don't think I've ever seen uh, I know that it is possible to I think at a 10% discount on ISOs like technically if they're awarded at the right time, you can get a small like the strike price can be mildly lower than the fair market value at the time of grant. I've never seen it. Got it. Got it. Is that what you're referring to about is that what you're referring to about the the 100k cap? No, I think that the 100k works and this is something that is always handled internally at companies so I don't ever have to do the math, but mm. I think it's literally the math that I just came up with you earlier, 100,000 shares at $1 strike price. If it was 105,000 shares at $1 strike price, 5,000 of those shares wouldn't qualify. Oh, I see. Okay. Okay, cool. Second, I don't have to think about that very often. <laughs> okay, cool. So, um the 2-year holding uh, after grant, 1 year after um uh, uh, exercise mm -hmm. and then, and then what happens? Right. So, so if you meet the requirements, I told you earlier, um, to circle back the $15 of bargain element, if you exercise that share or that option, uh, you now receive a share and that does not show up in your ordinary income tax, social security, or Medicare taxes, where it does show up is in the alternative minimum taxable income. Okay, and just to give some background on what that is, is within the United States, uh, our tax system is obviously quite complicated. Um, there's a lot of deductions available, a lot of credits, et cetera, that wealthy people use. It's mostly for wealthy people, let's be honest. You use to minimize their taxable income and pay lower taxes. In the 80s, Congress came up with the alternative minimum tax, which just says none of those, it's actually quite simple if you think about it. They just say, here is your tax before all those deductions, add all that stuff back, all those preferential tax treatment items, add it all back. It's pretty much a 28% tax on that income after it's added back. And one of the main things that are added back, it, well, it's funny if you look at the list of all the addbacks, it's like intangible drilling well costs that were deducted, giant <laughs> state and local income taxes, and like a bunch of other like life insurance things that your average American has never heard never of. Never going to encounter, yeah. So it's really, it's... It's basically a second tax regime, totally separate, just designed to basically make wealthy people pay um, their fair share. Is that kind of exactly. the mental shortcut? And it runs in parallel at all times. Everyone listening to this podcast has been subject or has been exposed, I should say, to the alternative minimum tax in one way or another, but has probably not paid it because it runs in the background. Your TurboTax runs it. Your tax preparer always has to look at it to see if they're subject to it. 99% of the time, most people, I don't know if that's true, but most of the time, most people's regular tax exceeds this alternative calculation. You only pay the alternative minimum tax if after running that calculation, um, it exceeds your regular tax and you pay the difference between the two. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. So okay, so let's say, and the main, one of the main addbacks that our audience is probably worried about, or one of the preferential tax treatments that I just mentioned is that when you have that $15 bargain element that doesn't show up in your income, you loan your friend or you give your friend 10, he gives you 25 back, you get that $15 Delta. That is a preferential tax thing, right? Like typically that would have shown up in your income, but because this is a qualified incentive stock option, it didn't. Well, for AMT purposes, we don't get that exclusion. So it's added back mm -hmm. into alternative minimum tax. Let's say your alternative minimum tax calculation is $40,000 as $40,000 of alternative minimum tax and your regular tax that did not include that income is 35 thousand, you will pay the difference of $5,000 as additional alternative minimum tax on top of your regular tax. Yep. Yep. Makes sense. So it might subject you to AMT. It might not. You have to do the math. And it also probably depends on how much you're exercising, how big the bargain element is worth and all those things. So that's the yep. part you should definitely consult a CPA. And then what happens? That's not the end of the story. <laughs> no, unfortunately, it's not the end of the story. So, but it's a good thing that it's not the end of the story, actually, because um, so you've you've exercised your shares. Let's say you pay um, to make the math or the narrative a little bit easier to digest. Let's say after you have a big bargain element, hundred thousand dollars of bargain element goes in your alternative minimum tax, and you pay fifteen thousand dollars of AMT uh, because that's exceeded your your regular tax was thirty. Um, and your alternative tax was 45,000. So 15,000 is the excess. So that's what you pay in AMT that year. Okay. Now, the cool thing is, <laughs> the cool thing to me, I think is 
that the tax related specifically to those incentive stock options, you get as a credit in the future, okay? Because you paid tax on those options now, here's the thing, later on down the road, you are going to sell those shares, okay? And you've paid alternative, you've paid a higher tax on those shares now and you exercise them. So there's a second event down the road wherein you will sell those shares and to prevent, long story short, to prevent double taxation on the uh, exercise and then the sale, you are allowed a credit in the future for any AMT that you paid now because you'll pay also tax on them later. And we don't want double tax on these shares. So you get a credit that you get to carry forward to future years. And any year in the future where you're, uh, you have a flip-flop of, flip of what you've experienced in the year of exercise in the year, in future years, if your regular tax is higher than your AMT, like most normal Americans, you get a credit down, your regular tax gets to come down to your alternative tax. So let's say the year after the exercise, your regular tax is 40 and your AMT is 35. That's a $5,000 difference. So of your 15,000 of credit that you carried forward, you get to um, take 5,000 of that back as a credit in that year. And then you have a $10,000 carry forward to the next year. You can always so, only take the dif difference between the two, but and then have to amortize it over time. Yeah. So you would only get you would only get the difference between the two. So let's say if, if it was the same difference for the next three years, you would get $5,000 of a credit over those next three years, or for whatever reason in year two after the exercise, it's a $10,000 difference. It would only last two years. So you'd get five and then 10, and then you'd be done. Mm -hmm. But that's why I recommend people that are dealing with that specific type of issue deal with a competent preparer because you got to keep track of that thing. We call that a paper asset, something to watch out for. We've seen people lose it, just like leave it off the returns in future years. And it's 50,000. Yeah, yeah, of course. Dollars. Yeah. And the IRS isn't going to come tell you about it. Nope, they do not remind you that yeah. you have access to this credit. If you just self-file in TurboTax, though, and you're doing it year by year and you're importing last year's taxes to begin this year's return, doesn't Turbo, wouldn't TurboTax um, pick that stuff up for you? I think so. Yeah, I think so. The um, It's smart enough to pick it up. The problem is, is where you... Maybe a taxpayer forgets to even report the incentive stock options on the return because it's on a special weird tax form called a 3921. Mm -hmm. um, or um, they switch preparers. Like they go from TurboTax to a professional and that professional doesn't know about the credit for whatever reason. Because uh, it's a pretty niche thing. So anyone on this podcast dealing with ISOs, you're in a niche space. You got to work with a niche type of accountant if you're going to deal with it or a financial planner as well. One thing I'm curious about, and I'm I'm trying to I'm going to try to not make my brain explode here, but um, mm -hmm. um, you pay AMT first at twenty eight percent, and then later you get the credit back. But if it's long term gains at that point, you're getting taxed at fifteen twenty percent. Mm -hmm. So you've paid twenty eight, but you're crediting back at fifteen or twenty, which I guess ultimately just means that you have to amortize over a longer period of time. Is that kind of like a is the government basically getting a little bit of a free lunch in that spread? Uh, no, actually, uh, it's this is like taxes suck, yeah, <laughs> and they're really complicated. <laughs> so let me let me debunk a myth on that. It's just the the credit is actually against it's it's not against specifically cap gains tax. It's just against your tax in general. So oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. So the way that the tax works is that um, the tax on your on your line on your tax return is a combination of cap gain tax and regular tax. I see. Um, so it goes against your blended rate. Yeah. So it's just, it's just raw tax. So, um, I so see. it actually does get come back to you at whatever. But uh, then like most people's blended or effective rate is going to be less than 28%. It's just like, you need a lot of income for the blended rate to hit 28%. Um, so which I guess means that maybe you're, you have so much income that you can just take all the credit in a year or two. Um, but if you're if the diff between AMT and regular is fairly thin, then you might be spreading that, I guess, out over more years. Then that's that's what it seems like. Is that the right yeah. way to look at it? Yeah. Well, here's a way to think about it. Let's say that you're in you're paying it at 28 percent. And then in the future, you're only at a 10 percent tax rate. It's going to take you longer to eat it up because you paid at 28 and now you're recovering it at 10 yeah, percent. So yeah. but but look, you're in a lower bracket. Like, that's good. That's good for you. Let's say you're in a high bracket in the future, like, yay, we get to recover more of the credit faster, but you're, you're in a top bracket. So that, that's, and another thing to, to debunk is that the recovery of the tax credit is not necessarily tied to the sale of those shares. Okay. So you could, you could, 
exercise those shares and acquire them, pay the AMT, and then not sell them 10 years later, let's say. But you could have already recovered your credit by then because the credit, the mechanics of it are simply when the AMT is lower in the future than your regular tax, that's when you recover the credit. Oh, I see. So that's that's quite nice then because then it doesn't yeah. like require you to, say, artificially sell the shares if you didn't want to. Yep. Um, it's just whenever your regular tax exceeds AMT. Got it. Got yeah, it. but like, why are you holding those shares for 10 years anyway? Like, You have a concentrated position in a company. You've already qualified for long-term cap gains rates. So why don't You'd we have to be really like, bullish that it's Amazon, basically. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, the, yeah, who, who knows? Performance is no guarantee of future results. <laughs> for, for sure. <laughs> so yes, if you're bullish on your shares, then... Uh, please go for it. But, you know, my job is to take you through the gateway of financial independence with the least uh, risky, you know, and with the least risk possible. And most of the time that involves selling the majority of your shares within three to four years after. Makes uh, sense. Event. Okay. So for ISOs, um, after you exercise, there's this AMT um, calculation and it may you may get taxed at that mm -hmm. point and then carry a credit forward. And then later when you sell, if you've met the the holding period requirements, then um, for the for regular tax purposes, all of the um, all of the gain from the exercise price to the sale price, I think would all be considered long term capital gains, though in the regular tax regime, right? Exactly. Yes. So whereas if there were non qualified options, that bargain element at the time of exercise. Uh, would have increased, you know, you'd have paid ordinary income tax on that, and then it would have increased your basis. So the only thing uh, available for long-term cap gains would have been the difference between exercise plus whatever you paid ordinary tax rates on. So the 25 of that case, in that case. So let's say in our earlier example, that $15 bargain element, you're up to $25. Um, and then down the road, you sell it for 50, you would only get long-term cap gains on the difference between 25 and 50. Whereas with the ISO and the ISO exercise, long-term cap gain difference between $15 and 50. Yeah. So you would get a lot more, um, uh, you would get a lot, a, a lot more uh, of that income subject to the lower cap gains rates. You, yeah, you basically get the bargain element at capital gains rates instead of ordinary exactly. rates. Exactly, yeah, thank you. Whatever the, if I got the math wrong, then that's the principle there. Um, so that's all well and good if you meet the holding period rules. What happens if you don't meet the holding period rules? Yeah, so that's what's called a disqualifying disposition. And that's where things can get messy, especially if somebody has left the company that they used to work for. Hmm. Uh, because let's say you exercise a bunch of shares right before you leave. And that's typical because you have to exercise your shares within three months of leaving your company in order for them to still, uh, well, they're gonna expire. If you don't exercise them within three months after leaving, most of the time, um, then they just expire. So if they're worth anything, people, like it's free money. So most people exercise, uh, but then anything can happen. You could want to buy a house now instead of later. Uh, you don't wanna wait for the holding period or the company's valuation has gone down and you wanna sell before it goes even further down. Whatever comes up, you sell the stock before you hold it for a full year after exercise. That's what's called a disqualifying disposition. And what's and that disqualifies them from incentive stock stock option treatment back to non-qualified regular, essentially regular stock option treatment, which means that your income is subject to ordinary income tax rates instead of long-term cap gains rates. It's also subject to social security and Medicare. And any of those types of income need to show up on a W-2. So where it gets messy mm -hmm. is that you don't even work there anymore. And you are what supposed to tell your old company, hey, I disqualified these uh, shares from when I used to work there. So please issue me another W-2. It's like even weirder if you haven't worked there in that tax year. Hmm. Uh, so that's often where we as advisors often have to say, hey, here's what happened. You need to go back to your old company and tell them to issue a tax document. The tax documentation surrounding equity compensation is surprisingly messy. We have had to override... Um, uh, millions of dollars of cost basis information, hmm. uh, probably tens of millions of dollars. This is May of 2021. We just went through tax season for a couple, about 400 uh, individuals. There's probably millions of dollars of uh, taxes that we saved our clients because we overrode the tax documentation to be the accurate amount. It's really, really messy. If you've got large equity compensation awards 
and your CPA is just a regular CPA or tax person is a regular person that doesn't like niche into this, I strongly urge you to get a second opinion on what's already happened uh, because the documentation from E-Trade, ShareWorks of Morgan Stanley, AST, ComputerShare, all of them are often incredibly wrong because they, they're not also the payroll provider so mm -hmm. that they don't know that the income already showed up in your W-2, mm -hmm. then the 1099 needs to be overridden when they report it to the IRS to say, hey, we already paid tax on that. I don't want to pay it again. I, every time I make those adjustments in a tax return, I'm like, good God, this is this system is so, so wonky that there's definitely thousands, tens, hundreds of thousands of taxpayers in the U.S. that are paying too much in tax because they don't know about this. And so just to be clear, that is that um, uh, how I guess how does the where does the gap arise between, say, what a computer share provides you versus what the company would provide you? Because if you, um, uh, let's see if I can make my brain not explode. Yeah, here. sure. If, yeah. You, if you exercise shares at, say, in this case, like, um, I guess whatever scenario where a computer share would effectively be wrong, um, there's no withholding, right, that the company, there's no, nothing for the company to withhold in taxes on your behalf. Um so I'm just trying to understand how how a computer share uh, uh, f report or tax form that they send you are um, how it could be wrong. Yeah, how it could be wrong, basically. Yeah. Well, you got to remember you're dealing with small companies often, and small companies don't have the most money to deal with administrative stuff. And then you've got the company playing a game of telephone between the payroll company and the custodian. You know, those are three different entities. You know, the, the custodian is just their main job or their niche is to administer a stock plan. And they don't always talk to the payroll provider, which is in the middle of a, uh, or, and, uh, or is on the other side of the company in the middle. So if there's not a good stream of information back and forth between those three people, then the documentation is just going to be wrong. Right. Sometimes there are not even tax documents relevant to these transactions and they need to just be manually reported to the IRS. So I know it sounds crazy to think that all these tax documents are incorrect, but I see it every day. So like uh, a computer share reports to you um, a, a, a tax form that says, hey, you have this much bargain element like because you paid this much and this is what the fair market value is. Um, so they don't actually, they don't do that. So the custodian is mostly related to the actual uh, equity sales. So they will deal with the sale of the stock. So that's what they deal with, right? So um, what a custodian will do is they say, hey, um, we've created an account for this employee of this company. They might not have, or they'll have these awards that will vest over the next four years. So they will tell the employee, all right, here's what's now vested. Here's what's available to exercise. And then if they exercise a share, they know that, that that client now owns that share, but they don't know what shows up in the payroll system over here. Sometimes they don't even know if they're non-qualified or incentive stock options, funny mm -hmm. enough. Mm -hmm. So all they know is that that client now owns that share. Mm -hmm. They don't know what's gone into their W-2 already because that's two entities over. That's the payroll company. That's not their problem. And then when the client sells that share or that employee sells that share, um, they just know what the, that all they know is what the person paid the custodian directly to acquire it. So they know that they paid $10 for it. They don't know about the $15 of bargain element that already showed up in the W-2 at the payroll provider. That's oh. someone else's problem, you know? So all they report to the IRS is the $10, not the 15 as well that showed up in the, in the oh, uh, W-2. I, I see. So then as you, as Joe taxpayer come along, you take the form from computer share and you're like, oh, I guess this is my gain. You punch in that gain. And then you yep. take your W-2 and you're like, oh, I guess this is my taxable income. Exactly. Not knowing that there are overlapping dollars. Exactly. Paying double income tax on, on all of that uh, bargain element for non-quals and for disqualifying dispositions, often for RSUs, often for ESPPs. Restricted stock is more of a niche thing. Got it. Got it. Isn't that crazy? Um, I, yeah, that's, I mean, <laughs> unless you're keeping very good records and you're like kind of anal retentive about tracking your strike price and your basis, et cetera, uh, I guess, if, first of all, if you are really anal retentive about doing that, you could probably do this on your own without making a mistake, but there's lots of ways to screw it up, I think is I think is the point, right? Yeah, yeah, there's, there's lots of ways to screw it up. One, one tip is to watch for code V on a W-2 because it'll show you the amount of non-qualified income that's in your W-2. Unfortunately, there's no uh, indicator for RSU income that's also in your W-2. So, yeah, 
you got to deal with pay slips. You got to deal with historical transaction detail. I mean, that's what our whole, that's what our company does for our employees essentially is just clean up this mess. Um, one thing I was curious about is um, since you pay to exercise an option and then you have this phantom income uh, that's imputed to you via the bargain element that you're now responsible for paying taxes on, what happens, in, I guess, maybe in the case of some clients that you've um, advised in the past, when there's no secondary market for you to sell shares to maybe cover some of the tax, like if you don't have the cash to pay the tax, what happens? <laughs> like, you go to jail. <laughs> is is that the end game? Pretty much. Like, there's just no. I mean, you're 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 stuck. Like, you're 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 gonna have a a liability to the IRS, which you can't pay, which is now accruing penalties and interest, et cetera. Is that, is that the end game? Um, yeah, it's pretty, well, that's one of the, that's some of the exercises that we go through with our clients is like, all right, here's what we've got to deal with. How much cash do you have to like handle this? Cause in a perfect world, we would all exercise our options as soon as they're granted or as soon as they vest. And in a perfect world, they would all go up in value. Right. And we have unlimited cash to deal with all the tax consequences, but we don't live in a perfect world. So we got to say, all right, um, typically a client will come to us after their equity is worth a ton of money because that's when you hire an advisor. Um, and we say, all right, here is the cash that we have to deal with. What's going to happen if I exercise this amount of options? Because um, I'm going to need to come up with cash for two purposes. One, the actual amount to buy the shares. If they're $50 a share and I got 100,000 shares and I don't have that amount of money, I need to pick which ones I'm going to exercise. And what's going to happen tax-wise when I exercise those? Like, what bracket am I going to be in? What's the actual cash outlay? When does that need to come out? And we go through that exercise. To answer your question is, let's say we've exercised, oops, too much. And now we knew that we had enough money to exercise them, but we didn't have the money for the actual tax. Well, come April 15th of the year after you exercise them, you're going to file your tax return. It's going to say that you owe too much money, owe more money than you expected. What do you do? You can either, the main thing that I would recommend is going on an installment agreement. Uh, the IRS understands that this happens and they have method, methods to deal with it. If you owe less than $50,000, you can fill out an installment agreement request online automatically. It'll automatically be accepted by the IRS if you owe less than that. And you can uh, pay off your balance up to six years. So you can take your balance and divide it by 72 because that's six years of 12 monthly payments, right? And that's how much you'll pay, mm -hmm. right? Um, and it's actually quite manageable. It's really hard to get so much income and have so little cash where you can't pay it off over six years. Um, if that does become the case, then you can explore something called an offer in compromise, mm -hmm. which is essentially where you offer to pay a lot less than your tax bill to the IRS. You essentially say, I'll never come up with that money. Mm. So it's like a workout. My, yeah. Here's my, here's what we're going to negotiate on this. I see. Um, and all my years of, Doing, I've done taxes for 10 years. I think I've submitted uh, maybe three or four. And on average, only 5% of them are accepted by the IRS because it's quite a difficult process to sort out. There's, that's a whole niche called tax resolution. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it can be done. I guess um, it sounds like this, you know, um, finding yourself in this scenario should be pretty rare. But if you were that lucky person who, you know, joined... Facebook in circa 2008 for maybe this might have hit you. Is that, is that fair? Like it's pretty rare basically. Well, you might not have the cash now, but if you're the one of the lucky people that like, let's say you exercise all these shares and the reason that you can't pay your taxes because the value has gone incredibly up. What do you, well, you could just sell the shares, right? True. <laughs> but, true. Yeah. For short-term cap gains. And that's why we often recommend that. Like, what are you waiting for long-term cap gains? Well, you're only gonna have to wait a year. So if you take all the, like if you pay all the tax and then you wait a year and, this, and the value goes quite down, you're just going to have a, what we call a, a capital loss whipsaw where you've paid ordinary tax rates on this huge value. Then it goes down in value after you've paid ordinary tax rates. Now you're going to have a capital loss in year two. Um, you're only, you can only take $3,000 of a capital loss per year. Even if you have a million dollars in capital losses, uh, you can only take 3,000. So it's going to take you, I think, 170 years you'll die least. first yeah you'll die yeah first. you'll die first yeah <laughs> um unless you have so, a lot of gain sometime in the future to offset it with yeah um, yeah your yeah. cap gains can offset it in the future so one question um if for isos if you exercise pay the bargain uh, you, you you get the bargain element pay taxes on it and then when you sell you know these things are risky so the price mm -hmm. could have dipped below 
your strike price, what happened? But that, that you, I think that's the scenario you're saying, right? That's the capital. Lo- then you're taking a capital loss. Yeah, it's just a big loss. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Um, I wanted to um, ask a little bit more about 83B elections because you know we touched upon it earlier, but we actually didn't um, define mm-hmm. it or discuss it too much. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, what it is, how it works, critical things to know about it? Yeah, yeah, totally. So Section 83 of the Internal Revenue Code allows for the acceleration of income for restricted stock or restrict, yeah, unrestricted stock options into the current year. And why would you want to accelerate income from the future into the current year is the question, right? Like no one wants to do that. Well, it could make sense if the income in the future is going to be gigantic um, if the stock increases in value, but we're trying to push income into the current year based on the current valuation of said stock. Okay. So let's say that um, you've got a thousand shares of a company that's currently worth $1. So you got a thousand dollars of income and a third of that is going to be vesting per year. So $333, you're one, two, and three. So you could take an 83B election and say, I want to accelerate the $666 from years two and three into the current year. I'll pay tax on that now because it's not that much income because what could happen is it could go from $1 per share. If we're like, we're trying to increase the value of this company, that's the whole goal of this enterprise. It could go to $100 per share, right? So instead of $333 per year, we got $33,000 per year. Okay, so if you don't make the 83B election, you'll pay $333 in year one, and then $33,000 in year two of income and 33,000 in year three. I mean, it'll probably even go up higher in year three if it's you know increasing in value every year. So, so what we do is to make an 83B election, we would say, hey, IRS, within 30 days of uh, receiving the grants, like the company comes to you and say, hey, we're gonna give you these thousand shares at $1 per share. Um, it's going to vest over the next three years. You have 30 days to make the election to accelerate that income into the current year. That's you a hard out. requirement too. That is not negotiable, right? That 30 not days. Negotiable, yeah. If you don't, if you don't make the the deadline, uh, then you're you're out you're, of luck. You used to have to also attach the 83B election to your tax return. Uh, that's no longer required. We still try to do it just in case you know the IRS is a bit wonky. Uh, you definitely do want to get certified uh, mail receipt on the, on the, <laughs> you can't, I don't think you can fax it in. You definitely can't email it in. So it's got to go in the mail. Um, so you want a certified, uh, you want to send it certified so that you know that, you know, the IRS has received it and it's postmarked and all that. And then, um, yeah, that's the mechanics of it. Um, so um, uh, I was curious, like let's, in your example, vest over three years, because the thing that I think it's uh, it's a little bit hard to get your head around is, uh, you're paying t- if you do the 83B election. You're saying I'm willing to pay tax on all of my grant now, even before I vest. You don't even yep. own the shares yet, so you're paying tax on an asset that you don't yet own, but has been, that you've become eligible for. What happens if you leave the company, for example? You don't. Do you get a credit back or anything like that? Nope. That's the crazy thing. Yeah, I never thought. I never really thought about that too much. Um, until it actually happened to one of my clients. <laughs> um, there is a risk that you take. The 83B election isn't just the risk that you pay, you know, that the um, the value never goes up. Yeah, yeah the company goes is, belly up. Yeah, the company could go belly up. Exactly. It could be worthless. The other risk is that you don't, you get fired. I've seen it happen. A guy, one of my clients, he exercised an 83B election. I think it was on like $70,000 worth of stock. It was a lot. He accelerated into into his tax year. Year two, he got fired for cause, and there's no recuperating or recovering of any of that um, equity or that income that you paid in the past. Uh, and that's why it's a risk. It's if you're separated for any reason, if you voluntarily leave because you found a better job elsewhere, you, you don't get a credit there either, right? Right. It's just it's gone. That's the risk you take when you accelerate it into the current year. One thing I was also curious about. Um, for 83B elections is I noticed that like not all companies offer the option to even do a, an 83B election, even though they might be uh, offering stock options and many employees may want an 83 to do an 83B election for exactly the tax benefits that, you know, you outline. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've, I've definitely, I've worked at companies that don't have the option. I even asked them, do you have an 83B option? And the answer was no. Why, why don't all companies offer this? Does it cost the company something? 
You know, I don't know. <laughs> I honestly don't know the office. I've talked to so many founders and law firms and I've seen so many stock option plans at so many companies. It's just, it is interesting where companies could have made a decision that was better for their employees. And you just don't know why it didn't happen. It could just be that they don't have good legal counsel. Um, it could just be that they didn't have the time or they just didn't make its way into the original stock plan. And it might be too late. Uh, there's a lot of things that, you know, each stock plan is a bit different. Some of them have requirements that certain things are available to clients. And some of them have, you know, they have to be available. Like it has, they have to be able to exercise their options within three months of leaving. Sometimes they can be get more flexible and go six months, but there's a lot of reasons why companies are like, nah, once that person's gone, we don't want to deal with them anymore. I'm not sure exactly why they would not offer the 83B election. There could be some administrative issues surrounding it. They could just not want to deal with like the blowback from an employee that doesn't make the election. They pay a bunch of tax a few years later and then they're mad at the company because the 83B election, like they were tied to it, like they were adjacent to it, but it was never made. Uh, like they have to prove to the employee then at that point, like, hey, we offered it to you, but you didn't take the election. Could be one of those types of things. Got it. Okay, cool. So, you know, we've talked a lot about like the, how the tax consequences work for different types of stock compensation and, you know, like 83B election and diff kind of different things to keep in mind um, uh, with each type of st uh, stock-based compensation. But the real question I would love to get your, you know, thoughts on when you, when you kind of absorb all this, like what are some key strategies, tax planning strategies that stock option holders or stock or RSU holders may want to know about as they think about like let's say let's say you're a you know employee or even an, an early employee or a uh, a late employee or maybe you're even a founder um and you're 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 at the precipice of you know being granted or you know uh having um stock-based compensation that is going to now be a material part of your income or your wealth um, before you start making any moves, um, what are some strategies that would be good for such a person to know about from the very early stages so that they can proceed thoughtfully and make good decisions? Of course, obviously, one of those would be to consult a CPA advisor for sure. Um, yeah, but, um, but 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 <laughs> outside of that, like what are what are things that folks should just keep in mind in terms strategically? Yeah, yeah, I know it's annoying when a financial advisor says, "Hey, you should hire a financial advisor for all this stuff." <laughs> but I, I am trying to get as much out of my mind to, to to your listeners as much as possible to help them out. Um, so, with that in mind, yeah, I mean, one of the things that we talked about is that one of the big threats with all the equity compensation is the difference between a higher valuation means more taxes generally. So, if you can, if you have the ability to exercise stock sooner than later. If you're fortunate enough to have the money laying around to exercise stock, you want to exercise it as soon as possible, given the risk that the value doesn't always go up for all these companies. So you could be buying worthless stock. Um, one thing to keep in mind that we haven't talked about yet for anyone that's early on at a company, that's an early employee, if you receive equity at a company before it's worth $50 million, uh, and the way that you would know that is you would ask the CFO of the company, hey, when my, my awards or my stock options were purchased, was the company like, when do we tick over into a company worth more than $50 million? Uh, you could qualify for what's called the qualified small business exclusion, uh, which means that you've got QSBS stock, which means that if you held it for long enough, you got it early enough, when you sell it, you can exclude up to $10 million of the gains from taxation. Um, so QSBS stock is worth a lot more than other type of stock because it's not subject to taxes. Um, it gets more complicated if you've got stock worth, like you've got enough QSBS that it's worth more than 10 million. We've got one client that's worth, I think like $70 million of QSBS. You got to get, you got to get fancy with uh, state planning attorneys. You can use various trusts to move that stock into the, into the trust for your kids so that there would be multiple QSBS exclusions. I hope some of your listeners are, you know, subject or have that type of situation. It's, it's obviously quite rare to have so much equity, but that's one, to, one thing to keep in mind is QSBS. It's another good reason to exercise the stock earlier than later, because if you wait until after that company no longer qualifies for QSBS, then you are locked out. There's no phase out. It's just when it clicks over, you're done. Ask the CFO or the finance team of the company when the QSBS is no longer available so that you can get ahead of that. 
Let's see, what else should they do? The 83B election in certain companies is also available on incentive stock options, not just restricted stock. And how could that work for incentive stock options? Because you know they'll vest in the future, the, the exercise issues or the income issues don't even apply to ordinary income. And well, the 83B election is available. You can actually accelerate the alternative minimum taxable income from the future into the current year for ISOs. That's pretty rare, but it is available. If you have ISOs, you might want to check out an 83B election at your company on the ISOs available. Could save you a heaps in alternative minimum tax. Let's see, what else is there? Uh, restricted stock units. You know, the interesting thing about restricted stock units is there's not really much you can do about it that when they vest, they go into your income. Um, one, one tool that we can use mechanically to help avoid giant taxes, tax bills due. One interesting kinky, uh, kooky thing about them is within our US withholding system, um, most people think that when their RSUs and their non-qualified options vest, they've withheld 45%. So that surely must mean that I won't owe any taxes on them. Well, the majority of that withholding is actually Social Security, Medicare, state and local income taxes, and then only 22% federal withholding. It's called the supplemental wage rate and it's applicable to bonuses. Anytime you receive a bonus in America, typically it's withheld at 22%. But if you earn more than just, you know, I think about 100, 150,000, you're in a higher bracket than the 22%. You're probably in 32, 35 or the top bracket of 37% if you're one of our fortunate listeners on the call. So if they're only withholding at 22, but you're in the 37% bracket, you have 15% under withholding every time an RSU vest or a non-qualified option is exercised. So there's no way to actually save taxes on that. But what I'm trying to tell your listeners is that you will probably owe taxes when you actually file your return and you might have underpayment penalties as well. So one way you can get ahead of that is just try to do a tax projection or if you know what bracket you're gonna be in every time you exercise options or you got an RSU vest, you literally mechanically and manually send a check to the IRS via the, or you know, on their website, you can go in and make a payment of 15% times the bargain element or the value of the RSUs. I know that sounds like nothing that anyone wants to do, but it's one thing that you can do to try to make sure that you actually have a refund at tax time rather than a balanced view. Um, that's three things. There's a lot of other things that we can explore. Those are three of the main ones that come up. Do you have any questions about those? You want to dig in? No, I, I think those those all make sense. Um, one thing I was curious about though is, you know, um, we were talking about earlier. There's these um, kind of gnarly two two tax regimes. There's regular. There's AMT. Most of the time, you're going to be playing like most people. Most of the time, will be in the regular tax regime. But when they exercise options, they may actually flip over. Is there any strategy where you would like top up your AMT bracket with exercise so you you're like slowly exercising so that it doesn't exceed your regular tax um like your regular tax um liability it just kind of gets as close to it as possible so that you're not paying paying uh uh AMT? yeah so there's like basically a, a tax benefit or is that not a thing i was just kind of kind of wondering about that a moment ago no, yeah, I hear you. I think you might have it a little bit backwards where you might want to, since you're in the, you only pay the AMT when it exceeds your regular tax. Maybe you want to, if you've got the ability to increase your regular tax, it doesn't actually increase your overall tax because the AMT is essentially getting eroded by that regular tax. Um, that's, that is something that you could do. Like, let's say you've got incentive stock options, you exercise them and they push you into AMT. You could also then also exercise non-qualified options because a lot of our clients have a mixture of equity. Uh, they have a mixture of all four a lot of the times. So you could exercise non-qualified options and they would just increase your regular tax, but your AMT would be essentially going down because you only pay the delta between the two, mm -hmm. right? So that's one thing you could do. Yeah, that's one strategy. Um, especially, I, I really like that if you're also immediately selling those non-qualified options because you are not paying more tax to diversify out of your company, which is really what this is all about. Honestly, what we try to do for all of our clients is just to get them out of a concentrated position in a tax efficient way. And we don't want the tax tail to wag the dog. We'll often be less tax efficient to just get them out of that concentrated position because that's the real elephant in the room is that you are financially independent or you have you know a, a head start on most people, but not until you actually sell those shares. Right? <laughs> like the company could go to zero. So if you're at the casino and you've already won, 
we pay the tax to get out of the casino is mm-hmm. what we're trying to do for our clients. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. And it sounds like, uh, did I understand correctly, you were talking about the QSBS a moment ago, that if if you were in the right circumstances, and say, say you early employee at a company that ended up doing very well, but when you joined, it's just a handful of employees, so you know under $50 million valuation, but by the time you were re- ready to exit, whatever that means, exit the company, uh-huh. uh, your, anyway, your stock holding position, uh, that your um, the equity compensation that you had earned was worth like exactly ten million dollars. There is a scenario in which you might you might be able to walk away with that ten million dollar in equity compensation tax free. There is a scenario where that could happen. Absolutely, yeah. Let's say it's worth fifteen million dollars and you sell it all in that year. You could only have a five million dollar gain because of the ten million dollar QSBS exclusion. Not every state. Uh, respects QSBS. New York does. Um, other states um, do not always match the federal exclusion of income. Hmm. You got to watch out for that. That goes with AMT as well. California is, I think, the only state. There might be one other smaller uh, state that also has its own AMT, um, but they also will enforce an alternative minimum tax at the state level. So, all things, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, this has been really, really helpful. I know, like, pretty dense, but um, I think exactly what uh, uh, the kind of stuff that folks need to know about. Especially, there's there are a lot of folks in the who work in the tech industry in the audience. Um, where can people find out more about you, your work, your services? Yeah, just Brooklyn FI. That stands for Financial Independence. BrooklynFI.com. Uh, we work with clients in all 50 states. A few, you know, clients outside the country, more than a few. But yeah, we have a, a team ready and willing to help you deal with your concentrated stock position. Uh, so yeah, you can also reach me at Shane at brooklynfi.com. Awesome. Well, well, I'll definitely point to all that stuff in the show notes and I look forward to sharing this with, uh, with our listeners. You got it. Thanks, Andrew. Cheers. Take care. All right. That's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed today's guest interview and got a lot of value and insights from it. If you like this episode, please hit that subscribe button to get new episodes automatically sent to you. Would love for you to not miss any episodes because the Hack Your World podcast has a mix of action-packed solo shows where I walk you through specific strategies and tactics step-by-step, as well as guests who share their expertise about specific areas of personal finance, and finally, profile interviews of business owners who are trying to turn their side hustles into fully financially self-sustaining passive income streams. We break down exactly what they do, how they do it, and how much they're earning. So be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any of that great content. Also, would love if you could help me out and take 30 seconds to go to Apple Podcasts and leave a podcast review. It helps to support this podcast and it helps other people who are looking for topics like this find the podcast. And I really appreciate it if you could take a minute and just leave an honest review. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Hack Your Wealth podcast with Andrew Chen. If you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes and check out hackyourwealth.com for all our latest content.